In Romans chapters 1 to 5, Paul has been laboring to make clear what the gospel is. And in chapters 6 to 8, he's transitioning to tell us what we should do in light of this teaching. And here in the beginning of chapter 6, we see that he addresses an issue right off the bat. So Romans chapter 6, if you would just join me in standing while I read verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. You may be seated. When was the last time you were in in an art museum or art gallery? Now, I assume that for the majority of us, it's been at least six months with everything that's currently going on. But maybe it was in a big city like D.C. or New York, or maybe it was in, in a historic town. When you go inside, you get to see some pretty interesting and unique art pieces. Now, granted, this largely has to do with how critical you are. But there's usually one or two art pieces that will really catch your attention. And you know when that happens because it either causes you to step forward to look at it a bit closer or step backwards to see the full view of it. It's in that moment that you're trying to capture all the complex things and intrinsic things that make up the painting. And it's in that moment that you appreciate the beauty of the artwork, and you appreciate all the work put in by the artist. You might think to yourself, how could someone create such a masterpiece? This is what artists like Michelangelo, Rembrandt, Pablo Picasso, this is what they've done. They've captured the viewer's attention to their artwork. And by doing so, they show that there's more to the painting than just paint on a piece of paper. Rather, There is things that make it complex. And this is the point that I want to drive home. I've entitled this message, The Beauty of the Christian Life. Because the more you behold the gospel, the more you behold what the gospel accomplishes, 
the more you realize the character of God, the more it causes you to behold the abundant riches found in your union with Christ. So we're going to look at three things from this passage this morning. First, I want us to look at two distortions of grace. And second, I want us to see what union with Christ is. And third, what comes from union with Christ. So look at verse 1 here in chapter 6. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, if you're unfamiliar with Paul's letters in the New Testament, you'll quickly come to find out that he's not a person who beats around the bush. He's not a person who speaks in riddles. He's a straight shooter. And, you, and this is no different from what we find here in verse 1. But to give you a better picture of what's going on, you have to see what he's just said in verses 20 to 21 in chapter 5. Because it's directly connected to what we find here. He just finished saying, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So what's happening here is that he's anticipating distortions of God's grace. He's directly addressing people who would take his statement, which he just said, where sin increased, grace abounded, and they would distort it and take it as a license to willfully live in sin. So here, I want us to look at two distortions of grace and how it can manifest itself in our lives. The main accusation that was lodged against Paul, it can be summed up with one word. It's this word antinomianism, which literally translates to against the law or an utter rejection of it. So the accusation that was lodged against Paul was that he was teaching and promoting a type of grace that made the law irrelevant. And if the law is irrelevant, then I can live any way that I want to. I mean, if, what does it matter at the end of the day? If God's good or forgive me, his grace will increase. Paul, that's what you just said. His grace will increase to my account, right? Paul is addressing this distorted version of how Christians relate to the grace offered by God. And so Paul answers this distortion in the following verses. But he shows that God's grace not only forgives sins, but it also delivers us from sinning. Because sin not only justifies believers, but it also sanctifies believers. It's this distorted version or misunderstanding of God's grace, which is antinomianism, that distorts the graciousness and goodness of God. It's antinomianism that denies the role of the law in the Christian life. Another distortion of grace, which is the second one here, is legalism. Now, this word legalism may be a bit more familiar to us. I found Sinclair Ferguson's definition to this word helpful as it relates to what Paul is saying in this context. Sinclair Ferguson says that legalism is a distortion. Legalism is a failure to see the law set within its proper context. So again, it's a distortion of God's grace revealed in his law. Now the root of both antinomianism and legalism, it's actually the same. It sees the law as the problem. And even more fundamentally, it's a wrong view of God himself. So what's the answer or solution to antinomianism and legalism? It's God's grace. God's grace in our union with Christ. 
It's knowing who we are in Christ. The solution is not to overthrow the law, nor is it the law in itself, because the law only reveals our sin and our inability to uphold it. The solution is the gospel of grace. Paul covered this in chapter 5 extensively, but let me just read parts of verses here from chapter 5. And you listen closely to when I read the word grace, or if you feel comfortable with it, you could circle it or highlight it in your Bible so you can see this word stand out to you. Chapter 5, verse 15, he writes, For if many die through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Dropping down to verse 17, Death reigned to that one man, Adam. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace through the one man, Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the grace that's offered to the followers of Christ because of their union with him. This is the gospel of grace. The sad thing is that all of us can be susceptible to operating out of these serious distortions of God's grace, whether it's antinomianism or legalism. This can pop up in the form in our lives of making light of habitual sins, sins that go unaddressed in our lives. And instead of addressing it, we would actually indulge in it. The thought may come to our mind, well, since God is gracious, he's going to forgive me. But that's presuming on God's grace. And I don't think it's too extreme to say it's an abuse of God's grace. Now that word abuse is a strong word, but I think it rightly captures the weight and magnitude of it because it's a mistreatment of it. And it's a dangerous place for any of us to be in. So if you have put your faith in Christ, you now have a new identity given by God. And this new identity given by God is not a warrant to freely live in sin. The best way I think I can try to describe this is imagine someone at the beach who decides to deliberately go against the current. Now, all of us would probably say that's not the smartest decision because the current's going to overpower you. It's going to toss you back. And this leads to the question as to why would any of us go against God and his purposes? If you are a Christian, you no longer are under the power of sin or the, you no longer have the power of sin ruling over you. You have the power of Christ by the, by the spirit to overcome sin. And it's not going to be a walk in the park each time. But that's where spiritual disciplines take place. But returning back to this, if you are a Christian, your identity has been changed. Your identity has been changed because of who you are in Christ. Another way to think about this is the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, religion says my identity is built on being a good person. The gospel says my identity is not built on my record or my performance but on Christ's. So this is a perfect segue to our second point. What is union with Christ? Paul, in this section, he's laboring to let us know what that is and how it relates to our lives. This is not an abstract concept or um, this is something very practical. 
But in an attempt to find a short yet in-depth answer, I found Michael Horn's explanation of this to be very helpful. He says that union with Christ is not to be understood as a moment in the application of salvation to believers. Rather, it is a way of speaking about the way in which believers share in Christ in eternity by election, in past history by redemption, in present by effectual calling, justification, and sanctification, and in future by glorification. So to put it simply, to have union with Christ means that all the blessings that we receive, past, present, future, including our salvation, all flow out of our union with Christ. Another way someone else illustrated this was, think about a Christmas stocking. The Christmas stocking holds all the gifts and all the items in it. Without the Christmas stocking, you wouldn't have all those, all those things. In this illustration, the Christmas stocking is union with Christ. All that we receive in the Christian life is because of union with Christ. Now, in our fast-paced culture, we're very quick to say, well, I put my faith in Christ. What's next? And that's not a bad question to ask. But Paul, in this passage, he's saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. He's reeling us back in and saying, you need to know who you are. You need to pause and reflect at this mar- and marvel at this cosmic union you have with God. So let's unpack this a bit further by looking at the next verse in chapter 6. Look at verse 2 with me. By no means, how can we who have... All right, let's see. Let's see if this one... Get a better try. So let's unpack this a bit further by looking at the next verse here in chapter 6. Look at verse 2 with me. By no means, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? So when Paul says we have died to sin... Paul is talking about a finished past action. It's a finished past action accomplished by Christ. It's important to emphasize that this is not something that we could have done in our own power or strength. It is only through our union with Christ that we have died to the penalty and to the power of sin. And because we have died, with, died to it in Christ, we are no longer to live in it. And to, think of, and to understand what to live in it means, you can think about it in terms of to be swimming in it or to breathe its air. To live in sin means that you would tolerate it. You wouldn't address it. Paul is saying, no, that's not the way. The point that Paul is making here in verse 2 is that those in Christ have been transferred from the old age defined by sin and death, which is in Adam, to the new age of life through union with Christ. Now, one objection may come to your mind as we're looking at this. You may say, well, I don't feel dead to sin. So what is our response to that? It's that we, Paul in this passage, his response is that we must actively, consciously appreciate, dwell in, internalize what God has done for us in our union with Christ. Because it's knowing who I am in him that it's the foundation for seeking to live for him. But looking back at verse 2, one commentator noted that to him, this is the most important verse in the Bible 
for believers to know today and understand. Now, I could see why he would make that claim. Because our feelings sometimes don't match up with reality. There are many times where we may not feel dead to sin. But that is why Paul is urging us to know our union with Christ. And what we've been given through him. Since believers have died to sin, is Paul teaching that Christians no longer sin or struggle with it? The answer to that question is an emphatic no. Because in chapter 7, Paul addresses and lays out his own struggles. What Paul is communicating is that sin can no longer dictate you and no longer is ruling your life. Look at verse 6 with me. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The words that I want you to see in your Bible is we are no longer enslaved to sin. And what a relief and what a blessing. Yes, the sin will at times influence us. But our union with Christ secures that we no longer have to obey it. We now have the ability to resist it by the Spirit. And I have to be the first one to acknowledge that the Christian life can be messy at times. Very messy. But although there are many stumblings, far too many to count, it's a stumbling that's forward as we are being more conformed into the image of Christ. The Christian hope is that there's more to this world than what we presently see. There's more to the chaos in, our, in the world that we see and in, even in our own lives. Outside of Christ, we were given over to our sinful desires. We had no ability to resist it. But now the beauty of the Christian life is that now we have a new power at work within us, ruling us. So what does union with Christ look like? Well, if you look at verse 3, let me read here. Paul introduces a category of baptism. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus? And I'll just stop there. A repeated theme that came up as I was studying this verse here was that we can so lock in to this word baptism that we can lose focus of what Paul is communicating here. When we think about, when we see this word baptism, we think about the physical act of water baptism that we sometimes witness. Paul is not talking about the physical act of water baptism that we see. He's talking about a spiritual reality that's taking place, a spiritual transformation or identification. You can think about it in terms of how the Spirit regenerates someone. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us new life. And it's this spiritual transformation of baptism which is carried out by the Spirit that incorporates us in, joins us in to the Lord Jesus. We find in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, He is the vine and we are the branches. This is the beginning a new status and identity given by God. I imagine that there are some of you here who may have a family member or know of someone who suffers with Alzheimer's. Several years ago, I went to go visit my grandma from my dad's side of the family. <clears throat> it had been many years since I had seen her. 
as I approached her, she didn't recognize who I was. And she didn't recognize who my parents were either. Her Alzheimer's had progressed so much that she had only remembered us from a certain time period. She had only remembered me as a little kid. And as we tried to explain to her who we were, she had a hard time making the connection. You know, after a few attempts, she began to accept it. But then 20 or so minutes passed by and her memory loss kicked in. And then we had to start from scratch. I mean, after several times, we just said that we were guests in the home. It was really difficult and hard to witness that. Paul's aim in this passage has something to do with that of sorts. Paul's point is that people need to know who they are, or at least be reminded of it, of their new identity. This goes contrary to what we hear today. Today we hear that I'm defined by my feelings. I'm defined by my sexuality. I'm defined by my temptations. I'm defined by my sins. I'm defined by my Enneagram type. Paul in, this passage, Paul in this passage is saying, no, no, no. You're not defined by those things. You are defined by your union with Christ. Paul's concern is that we know that we are united with Christ in his death, united with him in his burial, united with him in his rising again, and united with him in life. It's in this chapter that Paul transitions and, from talking about what God has done for us to what we should do now in light of this teaching. It's important to notice too that Paul was not rushing ahead in the previous chapters and telling us how to live the Christian life until he had shared what had been done for them through Jesus. This is because the work of God in Christ is foundational to everything about Christianity. That's where we start and that's where we continue to go back to. It's God. So what does our union with Christ mean? Look at verse 11. Paul writes, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. One pastor illustrated it this way. Imagine renting a house from a landlord who ends up being pretty demanding, always raising the rent, never fixes any of the issues in the home, and even goes as far as threatening to kick you out for no good reason. Now, I know I'm speaking figuratively here because none of you have experienced any of those things, but to continue with this, there seems to be no way out. But then to your relief, someone steps up and pays off the remaining rent and you're able to get out. And you move out and you settle into your new place. And you kick up your feet and you think to yourself, man, I'm glad that's behind me. But then to your utter shock, your old landlord shows up to your new place, begins banging on the door and yelling and making demands that you make payments to him. Your old habit may kick in and say, well, I'll just give in to his demands. 
but then you muster up enough courage and enough strength to open the door and tell him to leave for he has no power over you. This is the appeal that Paul is making here in verse 11. You are dead to sin and alive to God. You are no longer under the dominion of sin. Knowing our identity is important. Paul's used words in this chapter like know and believe. He's, he's drilling it home for us. And being made alive is not starting a new life. It's receiving a new life to start with. And we receive this life through our union with Christ. So now let's turn to the third point. What comes from union with Christ? We'll look at three implications here. Implication number one, do not obey sinful passions. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Here it's important to distinguish the presence of sin and the reign of sin. He is not saying he is sinless or doesn't feel the tugs or pulls towards sin. Because we all face that. But when a temptation is presented to us, God gives a way out. And sometimes the passions can seem overwhelming or the temptations can seem overwhelming. And what is our response to be? Well, one of our responses is that we can lean upon the body of Christ here at Orlando Grace Church and outside of Orlando Grace Church. Whether it's practicing confessing your sins and praying for one another, as James says. Now, in my opinion, practicing confessing your sins and praying with one another is not something that we do on an annual basis. Or can I even go as far as to say a quarterly basis? But it should be a regular rhythm in our lives. Now, the Bible uses many words like we are to build one another up or encourage one another and even correct one another at times. And I know that this season in our lives has forced us to be more intentional and deliberate than ever before because we're no longer in spaces where we can develop and foster good community or grow deep in friendships. But my encouragement to you and to myself as well, because it has been challenging for me, is that you would pray earnestly that God would provide people in your lives who are currently there so that you would be able to practice these things, share your struggles, share the challenges, share the blessings, because we all face it. So what fuels our gospel obedience? Our gospel obedience flows out of our realization of God's grace, God's grace on our behalf. Our union with Christ secures that we no longer have to be subjected to the reign of sin. It's knowing who we are in Christ that propels us to live for him. Implication number two, present yourselves to God for righteousness. Look at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to, to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Paul's encouraging believers to do two things here. First, offer yourselves to God. 
That means simply to live for and with him. And second, to offer the parts of our bodies or our members to him. How does this manifest itself in our lives? Well, you can think about someone who uses the brush and the paint to create a painting. They use these tools to accomplish a desired purpose. This word instruments can be translated as tools as well. We as Christians can use our minds, our mouths, our hands and our feet in our whole offering to God. Implication number three, remember the proper motivation for the Christian life. Look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The proper motivation for the Christian life is grace. It is by grace alone that Christians are saved. It's not our obedience to the law because the law only reveals and exposes our sin. What Paul is talking about here is Christians are under grace. We spoke about grace in the beginning of this message. The role of grace is not to promote sin. It's by God's grace that we are delivered from the reign of sin and put under the reign of grace. And it's the only way that we can have assurance of our salvation. It's knowing who you are in Christ. Knowing that if you've put your faith in Christ, you have a union with him. And as I've mentioned, the reality is that yes, we will still struggle with sin and it still will influence us at times. But God's grace is neither diminished nor withdrawn because of sin. We are to remember who we are, to remember that we are now united with Christ because our union with Christ has irrevocably changed our relationship to sin. Now this message has largely been addressed to Christians and rightly so because Paul is addressing those who implications of the gospel. But I want to, as we're coming to the end, I want to say those who are skeptics about Christianity or who would call themselves non-Christians, what I want to say is that first, you're welcome here. And my hope is that you would see the Bible talks about us being in one or two categories. We're either dead to sin or alive to God. If you reject the claims of the gospel, you will die dead in your sins. There's nothing you could do to erase that. But if you put your faith in Christ, you freely and graciously received the gift of salvation and the forgiveness of your sins offered by Jesus. You are moved from the dominion of darkness to his marvelous light. And if any, anyone here still has questions about what this means, I would ask that you would talk with anyone here before you leave. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the way you have loved us in Christ. Thank you for not leaving us enslaved to sin. Thank you for not giving us only the law. Thank you for the way you have given us freedom in Christ. Thank you for your gentle, persistent, loving care. 
Lord, we pray that you would continue to pursue us with your grace. Help us to rejoice in it even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.